Hello, Cornellians. Thanks for joining us on the Fresh from the Hill podcast. I'm your guest host, Andrew Brady, class of 2010, and I'm excited to be here today with Kareem Abulnaga. Kareem is CEO of Practice Makes Perfect, a benefit corporation that partners with low-income schools to help narrow the achievement gap. He received over a quarter million dollars in scholarships to make his education possible, and Kareem founded PMP at 18. He's an author, a TED Fellow, and an Echoing Green Fellow. At 23, he was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 list in education, and at 24, was named to Magic Johnson's 32 Under 32 list. In 2016, he was ranked in the top three most powerful young entrepreneurs under 25 in the world. Wow. Kareem's TED Talk was named one of the nine most inspiring talks of 2017, and his Forbes Day in the Life feature is Forbes' second most viewed of all time, collectively garnering over 5 million views. He graduated in the top 10% of his class from Cornell University and has a master's in education policy from Columbia University. We won't hold that last bit against you, Kareem. Thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to be here. So the, the tagline of this Fresh from the Hill podcast is stories of noteworthy Cornellians, and, and you would certainly qualify uh, to, to a very high level on that. So I would just, I'm just fascinated to, to jump into your story, but I think maybe, you know, I watched your TED Talk, I think maybe it makes the most sense just to kind of wind the clock all the way back and tell us a little bit about kind of your, your story and, and kind of leading up to Cornell, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be very honest. I wound up at Cornell just like on a fluke. So I went to high school in New York City, went to a really low income, struggling high school, um, applied to two schools when I was getting ready to graduate. Uh, MIT, because I saw it on Goodwill Hunting, and Baruch, because it was a local business school and sort of where I was growing up, you had one of three career paths. You were going to be a rapper, you're going to be a basketball player, you're going to be an entrepreneur. Um, and when I went up to visit MIT, I saw they had a business program, and that was the, the story there. Uh, luckily, I didn't get into MIT. Um, I went to Baruch my freshman year, got a 4.0 my first semester, um, had a mentor encourage me to transfer. But at the same time, like when you get rejected from one top school, you're not thinking about applying to another top school. Um, and I had a mentor, another mentor who I was like working with at this aquatic center who had a friend who was a Cornell alum who went back for the Black and Biomedical Technical Association conference every year. And she was like, listen, you should go up and visit. Um, I'll give you the weekend off. And so I went up to Cornell for this medical conference, um, interested in business. So I, I guess I was just going up to visit um, and had a friend who was a freshman there actually in the architecture program, Nick Savides. And I was like, well, I may not care too much about the medical program, but maybe I can see my friend Nick while I'm up there. Um, and I went up and visited Ithaca in February. I still remember this. Um, got to hang out with the students. Uh, the subject of like AP exams and scores came up and I was a part of like a nonprofit program in high school that paid kids to pass AP. So I, I wound up passing five APs by the time I graduated. And I realized that there were exams that I had passed that other students had failed or scored equally on. And at, at the time, I remember thinking, like, I'm just as smart, if not smarter than these kids. Like, maybe I do belong here. And I, I knew at that point I was going to study business, but I didn't know what I was going to do with business. Um, and so I asked them, the students there, like, where should I go and, like, what should I study? And uh, one of the students was like, oh, well, there's the agriculture and like life sciences school and they have the applied economics and management program there and I remember at the time thinking well I don't want to be a farmer um, and so that that wasn't and then I think Nick or one of the other students at the time said well there's the hotel school it's like a business school but the kids there are pretty cool 
And I remember just like latching onto that idea of like, well, I want to go to a school where the kids are pretty cool. Like it's already bad enough that you're going to Cornell, right? That means you're a nerd. And so if you're going to a nerd school, like at, at least hopefully you can be cool amongst the nerds. <laughs> um, I, I remember leaving there and, and being super excited to apply. And I think uh, the, the tagline that I got hit with was if you're excited to apply to Cornell after visiting in February, you're going to love it all year round because <laughs> it doesn't get any colder than that. So um, yeah, I, was, I, I thought I'd one day be like using business um, and studying business ultimately to do something like meaningful. And um, I had that opportunity. I applied. I was lucky enough to get accepted as a sophomore transfer to the hotel school um, and loved my experience there. So um, that that was the origin story. <laughs> wow, I love it. That that's that's fascinating. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. Truth be told, uh, so I, I graduated from the Applied Economics and Management program later later called Dyson after I left. But I had a similar reaction when I saw it in the in the agricultural school, and I applied to mostly big programs when I was applying to schools. And to Cornell, I applied to the engineering program. So I spent the first three semesters as an engineer before I really realized all that there was to the to the AIM program. And of course, of course, now uh, both both the hotel school and and AIM are, are this college of um, so so maybe maybe we would have if, if we were both going to school now, maybe we'd be in a few classes together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As I was looking at your your bio and your LinkedIn profile and kind of the, the timeline of everything was that you actually started uh, you started PMP while you were still in school. So when did this when did this idea to, to create a business out of your experience uh, really, really start to materialize? Yeah, I think the idea for what we were doing came about as I was transferring, but the idea to make it a business like actually happened at Cornell. So my freshman year, as I was applying to transfer, I realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to have to pay all this tuition. I need to find like scholarship money. And so at the time, Coca-Cola was offering a $10,000 scholarship to any student who can come up with a solution for the achievement gap um, that involved some sort of corporate intervention. And I remember at the time thinking, like, I know nothing about this achievement gap. I know nothing about corporations work, but I wanted $10,000 to go towards my tuition for Cornell. Um, and lo and behold, I started doing all this research, and the numbers aren't just numbers to me. They're real people. So the achievement gap is a disparity in academic like attainment between poor kids and rich kids, black kids and white kids. Um, and the disparities were stark and they were real, right? Um, they call it that because you can have a rich kid who's black and a rich kid who's white and still have two different outcomes. And so what, what were driving those disparities essentially? So I got really interested in the research. I got really interested in the disparities. I got frustrated by the inequality. Um, and I started thinking about proposing a program for the scholarship. I didn't ultimately win the scholarship, but I just I kept thinking back to the the ten percent of first generation college students who graduate over six years. And I was like, I'm the first one in my family to go to college. Like, am I going to graduate over six years? Um, the fact that most low income children don't actually finish their college degree despite enrolling in a four year school. And so. Uh, initially, I sat there naively just like thinking about my own situation and thinking, I don't want to be a statistic. Um, and now you, now I know like you're going to be a statistic either way. So you can be a positive statistic or a negative statistic. Um, and, uh, and I just, I wanted to defy those odds and at the same time wanted to do something for my community. So um, I let things go as I was transferring. But as soon as I got to Cornell, I was like, we have to do something about this. 
Um, I pitched this idea of starting a near-peer mentoring program over the summer because the summer was two-thirds of the achievement gap to almost anyone and everyone that I could find. Um, and I had a group of people who every time I would check in would ask me how things were going. Um, and push comes to shove, eventually you're embarrassed of saying, hey, nothing has happened yet to, hey, why don't you come together with me on this journey of like building this organization? And um, the initial thought was that, you know, everyone kind of tells you when you go to college or when you're in school that it's not really about what you're going to learn in the classroom. It's about the relationships you're going to build and the interactions you're going to have and hopefully the friendships that will transcend your time there at school. And to this day, those are still some of my closest friends. So I had five folks that like ultimately like stuck it out with me. Um, and it went from idea to now project. And then the project evolved to like student club and then uh, started thinking about, well, what is the future of this and what does it look like for me? And, and that was really that last progression, I'd say like end of my junior year into my senior year where this kind of evolved into this is going to be a business and an organization that I'm going to run beyond my time here at Cornell. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of many, many people who uh, maybe maybe graduating or maybe maybe students right now and thinking about having a really a really purposeful career. And, and sometimes I think that, uh, you know, business, it, it's it, it's seen as if I've gone into so many classrooms and given guest lectures and you say, what's the purpose of business and you, to make money is always the first answer you get. Right. And and you almost are, are coming at it from a from a different angle because I could really see something like practice makes perfect, uh, you know, as people thinking typically that it's a, that it's a nonprofit organization. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're a benefit corporation. Right. So where where was it that you decided? I, I want this to be a, a business enterprise is, is what I'm doing. Yeah, I guess there's, uh, Andrew, just to hit on that, there's this uh, misconception sometimes that nonprofits also aren't businesses. We are legally structured as a for-profit public benefit corporation. But when we started out, we were a 501c3. Um, but from the very, very beginning, I always looked at that as just a legal status, right? Uh, when you're ultimately like running a business or running an organization, what you need to figure out is what is the legal status that's going to help me achieve my goal. Um, and so what is that goal and what inspires that goal? Well, when I was younger, I actually, I Googled a Carlos Slim, who for folks who don't know, is like one of the richest like entrepreneurs in like Mexico. And I may have fabricated this article somehow in memory, but I, I really thought that at the time when I was a kid and I looked him up, um, there was an article that I had read that uh, talked about like really, really creating value in this world and how so much of like the way you build wealth or you build money and do all that other stuff is by solving a really, really large problem. And so my, my entire like life has been spent around thinking about what is the largest problem that I care about that I can like spend my energy trying to solve. Um, and that's what businesses do at the end of the day. Yes, it's to make money, but at, what they're really doing is like solving a problem. And if they're not solving a problem, they're not going to actually be making a lot of money. Um, and so when, when I like had that lens or that perspective from the business side and coupled it with the things that I was really passionate and cared about, the things that frustrated me, the things I wanted to see differently, it was just a matter of marrying the two worlds and figuring out where is this like middle ground where there's overlap, where you're solving something really important and people are also willing to pay for it. Um, and so when we started out initially, we wanted to serve low-income kids and families, and that was our focus. And the only way I knew how to serve low-income kids and families was by raising money from really rich people to ultimately run services for free. 
And then over time, it became less about how do I serve low-income kids and families to how do I serve low-income kids and families at scale, right? Because if you're doing something meaningful or something important, the next question becomes, how do you scale it up? And so I started to learn about the dynamics, the funding pieces, the government like play of all of it and realize there's no way to solve the problem at scale through philanthropy. And actually the community that I was trying to solve or support the low-income kids and families ultimately like are very disenfranchised and unorganized because there aren't a lot of systems and structures in place for them. But the one place where they are actually organized is through schools. And so I started to realize that the only way to scale up and like actually serve low-income kids and families at scale uh, at any reasonable pace would be by going through the schools. Um, and then we had this like very funny moment where we were raising money and like trying to partner with schools, but schools weren't interested in partnering with us. Um, and that's because we were solving problems directly for low-income kids and families and not necessarily for the schools. And so when that light bulb like kind of went off and flipped, we started to realize that if we wanted to serve our constituency at scale, we had to do it indirectly by making the primary stakeholder, the school leader or the school operator. Um, and when you start moving in the direction of schools, you start to realize that they have budgets and they have priorities. And so when... And I genuinely believe this. If you give a service for free to someone who can't afford it, and for whatever reason they don't have the money, that doesn't mean that if you that they would pay for it all of a sudden, or that they wouldn't pay for it if they had money, right? So there was this misconception in the space too that people don't value services they're not willing to pay for. But you then leave out the entire bottom of the pyramid where people actually don't have the ability to pay for a resource. And if they had the money, they may actually pay for it. So you can't use that to validate whether or not your service is important. But when you do have a customer or constituent who can afford to pay and then they're choosing not to pay, then odds are what you're doing isn't creating that much value. Um, and so when that dynamic flipped for us and realized we we're serving the school leader who did have budget, then it became about making ourselves valuable and actually solving real problems for them that did help our constituency. And when we got to that point, logically, the business structure had to change. Mm. Yeah, well, it's so interesting, you know, because in, in a lot of ways, I I'm, I'm uh, run a local chapter in Rochester of, of a movement called Conscious Capitalism, which is in a lot of ways kind of starts to blend that, that, that for-profit and the non-profit and, and kind of looks back into history at, at where the two diverged because originally the, the first corporate charters were, were written for, for businesses to have a public purpose for you know hospitals and, and, and all the different number of things and, and sharing the risk and things like that. And so I think it's really interesting how in some ways those, those sorts of things are coming back together and you make a great point too where you know, a nonprofit does have to have to run itself like a business. So I think I think it's rather than kind of creating this dichotomy, what can what can the not not for profits learn from the businesses and, and vice versa is is a great way to kind of come at that problem. And and so I'm thinking then you in this in this entrepreneurial kind of kind of mindset, because that's maybe one thing that I think a lot of not for profits can can learn from from businesses is being more entrepreneurial and trying things and, and figuring it out as, as you go. Um, I, I'm curious how how has the uh, the conception of practice makes perfect how has that evolved over time? Like like what have you what have you learned or changed along the way? It sounds like seeing the schools as stakeholders was, was a big element of that. But but kind of what what is what are some of the ways that that you've you've been surprised maybe um, and had to change course along the way? Yeah, I mean, when we started out, we were purely a summer only organization. And I, I always like say that kind of happened by accident, right? 
Um, we learned about the achievement gap. We learned that two thirds of the achievement gap could be addressed or remedied by creating equal summer learning opportunities. But somehow that meant that we were exclusively focused on summer in the beginning. And one of the limitations of being a nonprofit is the rhetoric around what is considered mission drift, right? And so in the very beginning, there was all of this pressure to be summer only, because if we did anything else outside of summer, we were drifting from our mission. But our mission was never close the summer learning loss or eliminate the summer learning loss. Our mission and our focus from the beginning has always been about narrowing the achievement gap. Um, and so somewhere along the way, like we kind of lost that focus only to refine it a couple of years later. So today we recognize that summer is still only one piece of the achievement gap, though it's the largest driver of being able to narrow the achievement gap, but it's not the only way that you can narrow these achievement gaps. So uh, we're full school year now. We run programs all throughout the year. Uh, I mean, this last year alone, we supported probably over 15,000 low-income children across New York City, and that wasn't just over the summer. Um, it was throughout the school year. I think the other big like aha moment or realization I had was that nonprofits have historically only solved social problems, um, right? Think about AIDS, you think about hunger, you think about poverty, like that. those are areas where we always tend to think like, oh, nonprofit or government intervention, um, and then for-profits have typically only solved pain points. So someone's hungry, they need food, someone is like cold, they need a coat, or someone is, has a desire for a brand name or some sort of like confidence boost and they sell them this perfume or this outerwear. Um, and I really think the future of business is like going back to what you were saying earlier, which is where did it start? How do we marry the intersection between purpose and profit? right? No one wants to wake up every single day just generating profit. And folks are now starting to realize that you can't wake up every single day just solving a social problem, right? Because there's no sustainability there. You can't scale. So how do you merge the two? How do you find that intersection where you're still solving a really large social problem, but at the same time, you're addressing a key pain point that people are willing to pay for, which ultimately will fuel your mission and allow you to keep growing. Um, and the last like few years, we've been very fortunate, you know, uh, successive years of like almost a million dollars in profits. Um, and one of our commitments has always been to continue to reinvest our profits. So there's nothing wrong with profits. So what do you do with them? Um, and for us, it's about continuing to improve our quality, continuing to grow, continuing to hire more people, continuing to invest in the infrastructure that we know is ultimately going to pay off for society. So along that journey, where, where was it? Was it from, from the beginning of that kind of reorganization that you became a, a benefit corporation? Tell us a little bit about that journey and, and maybe also for those that, uh, you know, that, that aren't familiar, what that really means. Yeah, uh, we didn't become a public benefit corporation until 2016. And that, that was really when we made our legal structure transition from a nonprofit to a for-profit. Uh, what does it mean? It, it means that you have ownership in what you're building. It means that as a public benefit corporation, you're making a public commit commitment to like maximize uh, public good, right? And not maximize profit. And so um, I think that is one of the, the nuances that I think is super important that traditional for-profit companies have a fiduciary obligation to maximize shareholder profit. So basically anything that gets in the way of you making more money for your bottom line um, is wrong. Um, in the traditional for-profit sense. And actually you could be sued as a CEO or a management team that is doing anything other than maximizing profit in that traditional structure. Um, but the public benefit corporation designation actually doesn't eliminate that, but it makes it second 
Um, and second to what I think is the most important clause, which is that the primary benefit or the primary fiduciary obligation is to maximize public benefit. And then secondarily to maximize shareholder profit. And so uh, if you have a great board and like a great management team and you're long-term focused, um, which is the kind of perspective you need to have when you're solving any really big problem, um, you start to prioritize and put your resources in the places that actually do make society better and actually do solve a lot of the social problems that were created by capitalism or broken businesses and models that have existed historically. Yeah. So any advice then for, you know, for whether it's our students or, or young alumni who are listening, who want to start a, a purposeful business, you've kind of seen it from the nonprofit side, you've seen it from the, from the, from the for benefit side. How would you recommend that they kind of navigate those waters in terms of deciding what's the right organization for them? I think you need to learn about the different legal structures that exist, but then take a step back and be more agnostic towards what the legal structure is and be more intentional about what the problem is that you're trying to solve and what is it that you care about doing. Because again, all of those things are just legal structures. And yes, public benefit corporation on paper sounds a lot better than a 501c3 or maybe sounds sexier than an LLC or C corp, but it also depends on who you are, right? Different legal structures like attract different types of capital, attract different types of people who want to work within those organizations. And so uh, what you need to figure out is what is the legal structure that is going to attract the people that you need to solve your problem, right? And I, I always go back to that, like the legal structures are a channel. And as you've seen, you can change your legal structure, um, throughout your process and throughout your evolution. So what's more important is like finding something that you're really passionate about and something that you really care about changing. Um, when, when people ask me like why the system is where it is today, especially in education, I, I always go back to that, this notion that it wasn't oppression as, as many people actually have come out to say. Like I have friends who were on the other extreme end of it who are saying, you know, the, the system is the way that it is because like white people wanted it to be that way right? Or that there are people out there who want to make sure that immigrants don't succeed or that first generation kids don't make it out or kids of color, like never have the same opportunities uh, as kids who aren't. Um, and I was sitting in a conference, maybe like a year after I graduated. And this guy who'd been in the public school system for like 40 years, old white guy at this point says, guys, guess what? The term ESL, we're getting rid of it. Um, we're actually changing it to ENL. And ESL, for those who don't know, is English as a second language. And everyone's like, oh, no, why are they changing it? What, what is ENL? Um, and he goes, he, goes, he goes, listen, guys, you know, what we've realized in the last couple of years is that for a lot of kids who are coming to our country, English is actually their third or their fourth language. And so now we're changing it to English as a new language. And it's been the case for a long time that, that that's actually been it. Um, and I, my jaw just dropped. You know, I just sat there in like shock that it was 2014. <laughs> And our public school system had existed in its current state or operation for almost 50 years. And they're just now realizing this or just now making these changes. Um, and so I realized that it's more because of apathy than it is because of oppression, right? If folks don't wake up every single day intentionally thinking about how they're going to improve the system or the structure, it's not actually going to get better. But if the folks who are sort of not impacted by it and not seeing it from that different lens aren't the ones saying anything about it, again, nothing will happen, right? Any given day we wake up, 
we have all of our own problems to think about, right? Our own, did we sleep enough? Are we hungry? Did we get our workout and are we going to work out today? What are we wearing? Where are we going? What are we doing? The last thing you're thinking about is all of these social problems and the inequality that exists in the world. And part of like my goal and my life's work is to help bring education, especially for those who are disadvantaged to the forefront of people's minds. Because the more smart, hardworking people we have actively thinking about the situation, the conditions, the better they're going to get over time. Mm, you used the word there, intentional, that I wanted to I wanted to key in on. You know, building that you know that that intentional way that you're building the commitment and, and building the practices. And it's reminding me, uh, you know, watching your TED talk where you're talking about designing a school that people actually want to attend. Um, and you know that has to be done really intentionally. You have to really you have to really craft it. And so. I'd be curious if you could just kind of paint a picture for us, uh, for, for listeners of what does it actually look like to be, uh, to be a, you know, a student in this, in this practice makes perfect model? Yeah, I guess it depends on whether you're a student in our programs during the school year, a student in our programs during the summer, but in all of the cases, like we think about the student first um, and that actually really starts at our program design level. So when we're thinking about what is fun, what is engaging, what is exciting, um, we're picking and curating content based on that content that kids can actually like see themselves a part of. And then it trickles down into our hiring. So our summer programs are run by these teaching fellows and our school year programs are run uh, by folks we call interventionists. But in all of those cases, they're college students and recent graduates. And we're looking for people who love children, right? And it sounds like almost like a no brainer, but it isn't right. And so you start there and then you start to look at identity and you're like, do these folks who are going into the classrooms or are supporting our kids, do they see the potential um, in our children, right? Because sometimes we tend to look at children from a deficit mindset and we come in there thinking about all the things they don't have instead of thinking about all the things they do have. And then what, what do you sort of see or hope for their future? Because that expectation bias ultimately like dictates the kinds of outcomes that kids have. So then it goes there and then it's the actual like practice of what happens day to day in the classrooms and in the summer programs. It's always thinking about the things that were fun for us as children and then evolving with the times, right? Because I know what was fun for us isn't what's fun for kids today. The music is changing. The things they relate to are different. Um, and it helps to continuously be hiring folks who are like plugged in to what's happening. Um, same thing with our mentors over the summer. And uh, I heard this from the adults in our programs in the first couple of years when the teachers that we had involved would say that they were learning more at the end of the summer than the kids were just from the experience. Um, and now being on the other side of that, I see exactly what they're talking about, right? Day-to-day um, -day with engagement, day-to-day -day with the tools they're using, day-to-day -day with how things are actually operating. And um, our commitment is to continue to run programs that kids want to be a part of, right? And be in environments where they want to be. Um, spirit days, trips, group projects, um, really thinking about summer and our school years, not just as an opportunity to teach academic content, but make academic content engaging. Because um, ultimately, at the end of the day, like th there is this bigger agenda, which is how do we get kids doing better in school so that they can continue throughout their educational like journey and get to Cornell and graduate from Cornell, um, get to Brown and graduate from Brown, like some of our mentors have in the past, um, because then you create a cycle uh, where other folks continue to do the same exact thing because they can see those role models. Yeah, and, and I think I remember you talking as well about how you, you sometimes have uh, some of the older kids as, as mentors, you know, in, in terms of that kind of, you know, learning, 
you, you, there's all that research in terms of when, when you teach something, you remember it better. But I think also it, it just creates a different level of engagement when you're, when you're kind of paying it forward almost. And, and beyond that too, the psychology around it was really big, right? They say up until five, your parents are your biggest role models, but after five, it's your peers. And when I thought back to all the bad things I did as a kid in middle school and high school, I didn't do bad things because I wanted to be a bad kid. I did the bad things because that's what the older kids are doing. And so there's this pressure to always want to fit in or do what the older folks are doing. And it just so happens to be that in your inner cities, the older kids are doing bad things. Like it's not cool to be the captain of the debate team or the editor of the yearbook in the same way it was for some of my friends at Cornell when they were growing up. And so if we change the role model, if we change the profile of the kid who was cool that kids were looking up to, then we'll get a different outcome from the kids coming up after them too, because the pressure then becomes about doing well in school or being on a certain sports team or maybe being the editor of the yearbook. Um, and that is how we start to change like entire familial structures. Um, uh, one of our like mentors was in ninth or 10th grade in our program, went to my same high school, um, mentored this one student, Paul, the student's name who was mentoring was Irving. Uh, Irving and I stayed in touch. Ultimately, Irving got into ILR at Cornell and he was friends with Paul um, throughout all of Paul's like high school years and they continued to stay in touch. And then when Paul finally applied to college, Paul went on and belonged to Middlebury. And of course he applied to Cornell too because of that relationship. But that, that kind of interaction is what made that college aspiration and that college target real again for Paul. Um, and those are the kinds of like circles of like connection that we need. I mean, and again, even in my story, you saw that I never would have applied to Cornell. It wasn't until I went up to Cornell and I met the kids and I felt like, I was just as smart, if not smarter than these students, that I had an opportunity to allow myself now to apply or submit that application. And so it's, it's that disconnect of what is real and what is possible for me that sometimes isn't there until we meet someone or we connect with someone who we feel like we can relate to. Yeah, yeah, that's really a, a, powerful, a powerful story because I, I'm thinking about, you know, the different ways that you're trying to, uh, trying to keep, this, keep this momentum really building but also measuring success. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons that, that business leaders, uh, you know, are, are so focused on the bottom line is because it's, it's pretty easy to measure. You know, you've got your generally accepted accounting principles and you can tell, you know, that I make money or not. And then, of course, once you overfocus on that one metric, it becomes kind of easy to game the system a little bit. Uh, but, but you certainly must have a, a much broader range of, of success measures on your dashboard. So, so what, is, what does success look like? What, what kinds of things are you really monitoring? We look at the whole picture, right? And that means the quantitative and the qualitative data, right? So the stories of kids like Irvin graduating from Cornell and Linda uh, who went to Brown and then ultimately is now working at BlackRock, right? The same company that I forewent my full-time job opportunity from. And then actually the, what happens to the majority of our interventionists and mentors is they become teachers and they go back and flow into our public school system. And so that, that is another like big catapult or influence for us. Cause I, I recognize that the change I ultimately want to see isn't going to be realized in the next five or 10 years, right? It's going to be realized in the next like 20 to 30 years with a, a new wave of talented folks going into our system with a completely different mindset. Um, and building this community of folks who believe in revolutionary change, who believe that our system can do five or 10x more than it currently does for kids who are underrepresented, for kids of color, from kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. So looking at that and then 
the, the, the typical things that people ask you for, which is how many students are you serving? How many partnerships do you have with your schools? Um, and then looking on the finance side, which is what are the gross profit margins of these programs? How do we balance profit and impact? What are the right margins? And when we suppress these margins, what happens to quality? Um, and then continuing to reevaluate what happens when we do that. What is the right um, infrastructure support that we need to have for the various different types of programs? How do we continue to go back and figure out how do we stretch what we're doing? How do we bring our costs down so we can bring our prices down? Um, how do we reach more students? And so for me, I realized when we went for profit, it also was a commitment that I wanted to make leaving the nonprofit model because I felt like the nonprofit model also wasn't great. Um, you could raise a bunch of philanthropy based on the stories that you're telling and what people think the impact of your work is, um, and not necessarily the number of students you're serving or the quality of the programs that you're running, which is almost like paramount on the for-profit side. Like, no one is going to write you a check because you can tell a good story. Uh, it's, are your programs impactful and are your partnerships meaningful enough that other folks are willing to talk about the work that you're doing? And last year, we had 67 schools. We're already up to 24 this year on track to about 40 before the end of the year and continuing to build on our partnerships. Wow. So you, you've been talking a lot about scale. You know, that was one of the, one of the things that really helped you to, to decide that this reorganization was necessary. What are some of the, I mean, you were doing so many of the things that, that people talk about in education and, and struggle to do, or if they do, to really struggle to scale because oftentimes it depends on, you know, one, one, you know, charismatic individual that's really successful, you know, all these different, all these different challenges and barriers to scale. So what are you seeing uh, as you're looking to scale this model? What are, what are some of the biggest barriers to, to really taking it to the next level? Um, I mean, time, right? Like there's some things you can't rush, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of, I, I think we get a lot of credit for what we've done post-college, but I think the early years while I was in school, also building this out also counts. Um, and they were, they were influential like years in, in our development, right? Like this is year 10 for us. Um, I don't, I don't sugarcoat that. I don't lie about it for people. Like it just so happens to be that I started when I was 18. Right. So I can be 28 now and have 10 years of experience under my belt. Um, and I think that is a big piece of like being able to be successful. It's actually going out there, making the mistakes, failing, having those setbacks, um, and being lucky enough to have enough cash in the bank or have enough partnerships to continue to move past those hiccups. And then, then you think about like the team of people that you're building around you and supporting yourself with. And um, when you're starting out as a founder, you, the first focus for you is actually the board um, or the really influential people who are going to set aside some very valuable time to help you be successful. Um, and then if you get that board piece right, then it makes it easier to attract talented people who want to come and work for your organization, work for your cause, because they see other influential people validating the work that you're doing. Um, and then you continue to build from there. So can you build a really strong management and leadership team um, that rallies around the vision that you have and will continue to help you execute? And then can you continue to attract people to the organization who are going to fit in with the culture that you're ultimately building? I mean... For all of the like things that we do that are different, we also do a lot of things that are pretty cool, right? Like we wiped out almost 60K in student loan debt for our employees June. So we run a July 1 to June 30th fiscal year. We had a profitable year. We're in the midst of not just one pandemic on the health front, but one on the racial side too, and one on the economic side. 
And so as a company that believes in like business as a force for social good, like how do you actually move your profits to do something meaningful? And we had three folks on our team who had undergraduate debt when everyone else was debt free and we wiped it out, no strings attached, like nothing to be asked for other than the fact that like, this is our responsibility and other companies should be doing the same exact thing. So yeah, it's not a, Hey, this is what we came in to do. It's, how do we continue to roll and evolve and how do we continue to do more good even as we're scaling up and like continuing to think about these metrics and, and really using those opportunities to continue to build out our organization. Um, so people aren't just coming to solve a problem, but they're coming to build a lifestyle and throughout that lifestyle, they're doing something meaningful. That's actually improving our world and improving our planet. Mm. One of the things you mentioned there was vision. So I'm curious I'm curious, Kareem, what are you dreaming about? What is, you're, you're 10 years in, what is, what is 10 years from now? What does PMP look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think from the very beginning, it's always been a lot bigger than the, the tutoring or mentoring or the summer and the after school work that we're doing. Like I, and I've only recently been able to like clearly articulate this, that for us, it really is about building an institution that levels the playing field for low-income children, right? Like it's always been about helping low-income children. And it's like, what does that really mean? Um, and I, I was sitting down one day and like saw the word institution. And I think Samuel Huntington was the guy who defined it. And there were three like really key words in there that really stood out for me because institutions are uh, things that create value. They are places of like stability and they have recurring patterns of behavior. And so I want to build an institution that is valued, right? We're delivering programs and services that are valued. Um, we have some stability. So we're bringing in stability into an environment and a neighborhood and a community that's historically been unstable um, and then has recurring patterns of behavior, which ultimately like signals some sort of predictability, right? Because there's nothing worse than waking up and like not knowing what's going on all the time. Like you want to be able to know what to expect. Um, and we're just at the beginning of like building this institution now that will hopefully be able to do those things for our communities. And yes, that, that means software, it means online, it means in person, it means scale, it means serving thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children, um, but doing it over time. So it's not a, it's not a five-year goal. It's not a tomorrow thing. It's the next, how do we spend the next 10 to 20 years really building that kind of institution? Mm, I love it. Well, I will look forward to following along. One other thing I saw that that was uh, somehow, I don't know where you find the time, but that, that you have a kind of similar passion uh, in this as a founding partner of Gentleman Ventures, uh, really talking about uh, economic empowerment for minority communities and, and, and wealth building in, in inner city environments. And so can you tell us a little bit about how that fits into to all the other things we've got going on? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's not a huge amount of my time. Um, actually started it, I think maybe my junior, senior year with a couple of friends, just as an investment club or collective. Um, we just started thinking about uh, what does it take to really build wealth? What does it take to start small? Um, and how do, we, how do we make better decisions as a collective instead of as individuals? Um, and I think part of it also was inspired by the fact that I spent my internships on Wall Street. So working at Goldman Sachs and working at BlackRock before ultimately turning down my full-time decisions. But um, yeah, it's, it's a group of men of color who believe in like the markets and believe in the financial side of things, but also believe in the ability to pull resources together to have an impact. Um, and we're at the very, very beginning of like what we're doing there. I mean, we've just been collectively investing our own money for the last like 
eight or nine years now. Um, and yeah, hope, hopefully in the future, in the next five or 10 years, like we'll do something bigger, but it's been a passive like thing to keep my mind, um, not always a hundred percent on what we're doing day to day. Cause it is good to have change, but at the same time, like keep up with what's happening in the world. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you're, you're certainly, you're certainly paying it forward in, in a whole lot of ways, but I, I'm thinking back to what some of the things you were talking about in terms of the, the, the culture that you try to create with your students, right. In terms of you know, surrounding them with, with, with folks who, you know, maybe do say, yeah, you should try to try to go lead the, the, the yearbook committee or, you know, you should be on the debate team or, the, you know, those sorts of things. And, and I, I'm a big uh, proponent of, of that old saying that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? And that they can really elevate your game. And, and I'm just looking, I, I probably didn't even catch them all in your bio, but in terms of the Forbes 30 under 30 list and a, and a Ted fellow and an echoing green fellow, and uh, Magic Johnson's 32 under 32 list. And so I'd be curious, you know, as you're surrounding yourself with, with all of these other incredible folks, um, what, what have you learned along the way? Or how, how have you kind of grown from some of these fellowship experiences? Because in some ways, I, I would think anyways, I mean, you have an incredible story, but, but so do all, all these other people. And it, it may be a little intimidating. So, so what, what do you kind of say to, uh, you know, what you've learned? And then what do you say to listeners who, who may be nervous about, you know, trying to push themselves into some of those circles as well? Yeah, I know this is going to sound like really basic, but these are all normal people. <laughs> so um, I think it helps, you know, sometimes we create these images for folks in our minds and we forget that they are just like us. You know, they wake up, they, they're breathing, they sleep their seven or eight hours, so maybe sleep a little bit less in different points in their lives. They put their t-shirts on, their jeans, their skirts, their shoes, their sneakers, all on in the same way, right? So they're all people. And I think when you're surrounded by folks who are continuing to like set really big goals and uh, not let themselves get caught up in their doubts um, and in the realm of what's not possible and instead focus on the stuff that is possible, it inspires you to continue to set bigger milestones and bigger goals, right? Because just like you, they are, they are no different, right? And like that is God's like gift to us is that we have the same amount of time in every single day, right? And, and maybe there's difference in ability, but we all have different strengths and different weaknesses. And so the folks that I wind up like finding myself with are people who found out what their strengths were and figured out how to capitalize on them. So have you done the self-discovery? Have you done the introspection? Have you spent the time figuring out what things you're good at and then applying those to what you're doing? Um, and yeah, don't be discouraged. And I, I think, yes, yeah, sometimes the, the bio helps in the credibility side, but uh, that stuff is background um, and it's noise. If you let it be noise, it is also helpful and it's resources if you let it be resources. And I've gotten a lot from the networks in terms of friendships and education and guidance. Um, but it's also what you put into it. Like I have friends who've gone through all of those programs and been in all of those circles who haven't gotten as much as I've gotten from it. Um, and I think the same here is true of Cornell. I had friends who I went to school with who didn't get a lot out of their educational experience. And there are others who did, right? I was in, in a bunch of student clubs. I like showed up for all of the extra events. I did the service. I did the research with the professors. I went to the office hours. Um, I filled up my schedule every semester. And so uh, that's how you maximize your experience at school. But there are folks who got just enough credits to get by, who didn't really participate in the clubs, who like took every opportunity to go back home um, instead of be on campus. And so it's the same thing with a lot of these fellowships and these awards. Mm. 
that's actually maybe a great place for us to us to wrap up. For for those that are listening that are lucky enough to be students still, um, what what were some of the things that you found most impactful about your Cornell experience, whether it's a, a teacher or a class or a club? Because I know that I probably could have, I, I certainly filled my schedule. It's like, it sounds like you did, but I probably could have spent 10 years there and still not run out of fun things and, and you know, impactful things to do. Was there, was there any kind of specific things that, that you'd really recommend uh, students check out? Uh, I don't have a specific, well, yes, research, 100% like doing research. I mean, if possible to like, if you can get to a point where you can get an independent study where you're really like having to do your own research on something like that, that's the direction I'd go in. And I state that because we always think about the, the benefit of a liberal arts degree as being the ability to like, or leaving there with the ability to actually think critically um, and see multiple viewpoints. And you get that in doing research, right? Like here you are having to like put out a hypothesis Right. And then you're going back and you're doing discovery and you're trying to figure out like what's out there that supports this hypothesis or is it going to be disproven? Um, having to kind of go through that like contemplative argumentative journey in your own mind, but then also in your paper. And then you have to clearly make your case for what it is you're trying to do. And I think the more opportunities you have to do something like that while you're in school, uh, the easier it'll be to bring that stuff to life, right? Because from the very beginning, I've said like the purpose of business and the, and the purpose of some of these companies is to solve problems, right? And so if we can get in that that researcher's like mindset in addition to everything else we're doing and we have that like critical lens, we become a lot more effective at what we're doing, right? Using evidence to support our claims, um, being okay with the fact that we were wrong, right? And here's why we were wrong, because that's what researchers do a lot of the times, right? They're not tied to whether or not their outcome was what they wanted. They're going through the scientific like process of uh, hypothesis, uh, problem, potential solution, evidence, results, and then going back to, okay, was I right or was I wrong? Okay, I was wrong, and here's why I was wrong, um, and here's what the real answer is, or here's how we move forward. And um, life is not black or white, right? You're not it's not just it's this or it's that, right? It's it wasn't this because or it was this because. And so how do we think about that in our own like journey? And so Cornell has a lot of opportunities to do research. Um, I did the Hunter H. Rawlings Presidential Research uh, Fellows Program. But even within my own school, like I teamed up with Dr. Sturman and then um, I later worked with Dr. Stephen Hamilton in the human ecology school. So you have opportunities to also leave your own program and meet folks outside of your own bubble, which I, yeah, I go back to on, the, on that research side. And you're going to need it for everything. So I love it. Well, Karina, yeah. I feel like I could talk to you all day. I, I really think the listeners are going to enjoy this. I truly appreciate your time sharing so much wisdom and inspiration with us, but probably even more importantly, uh, truly appreciate all the work that you're doing each and every day and, and really being a, a conscious capitalist, being a benefit corporation, being a, a purpose-driven business leader. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, Andrew. And if I can, I just want to close with like one, one piece of like closing advice for folks. Um, my senior year was one of the most like challenging like moments of my life because, and it wasn't because I had all these like uh, negative things going on, but it was because there, there is something to be said about choosing between like multiple things that are really attractive. Right. And so I had a full-time offer to go work at BlackRock and the fixed income portfolio management group, or I could go work on practice makes perfect full-time. And at the time, everyone said like, go work on wall street, go work at BlackRock. And I made the unpopular decision at the end of it, 
to ultimately go work on my education organization. And I justified it to myself in a, I guess, a, a more of like a jovial way. But I was like, you know, the next like two years are what they are, but God forbid, like everything flops. I'll have a very compelling story for business school. I'll just go to business school and go back to Wall Street. Um, and I was afraid that I wouldn't get hired by these places again because folks like were really trying to scare me. Like, oh, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. If you don't take this now, you're never going to get it again. Um, and ultimately, like you need to make the decision in your life, right? Like I thought out to myself, like five or 10 years from now, if I looked in the mirror and I was unhappy, regardless of the decision I've made, if I was unhappy, like who would I have to blame? Um, and folks at Cornell know this because they're leaders. And so they've been in positions where you feel like, you're succeeding and everyone is there cheering you on. And you've also been in positions where you feel like you're failing, you're not doing well. And it feels like no one in the world is there except for you. And I made the commitment to myself that if I was feeling alone and I wasn't happy that I wanted to make sure that the person who made the decision was right there looking back at me. Um, and so I, I'm not saying that to sway anyone to go, go work at BlackRock or not work at BlackRock or go this place or that place, but to just own the final decision because you want to be able to point the finger at the person who made it. And the last thing you want is for the person who made that decision not to be there. Um, so own, own your final decisions and those opportunities and those jobs will be there because if you are smart and you're hardworking, which is the case if you went to Cornell, um, there's always going to be people who want to hire you. And I had job offers like left and right well throughout my first like two years out. And to this day, still get job offers. So they're not going to go anywhere. Um, they'll continue to be there. But like stay true to you. Love it. Thanks so much for that. And then thanks for the courage to, to really live it and embody it. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, inside stories of noteworthy Cornellians. Music from Fresh from the Hill was created by Kia Elbertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. To learn more about young alumni programs and how to stay connected to Cornell, visit our website alumni.cornell.edu slash young alumni.